Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you don't go to Geico.com, car insurance can be hard. Like early 90s heavy metal hard. I'm yelling and screaming and I'm loud. Roar. Geico makes it easy. You can review and update your policy or report a claim on Geico.com or the Geico mobile app. Because shouldn't we all have a little less stress in our lives? I'm not even upset about anything. Welcome to Real Jam Radio. I'm Danny Wuri, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. I wanted to have on Kevin Pelton of ESPN, one of my favorite guests, and we had this original concept a couple weeks ago about doing a podcast on kind of ways that the league could improve, and we built that into about the first half of the show. We have a, a series of, I think, interesting ideas and issues and concepts of, of resolutions of that, and then we get into a larger discussion about the league, and I think you'll really enjoy it. So first part i think it's about 40 minutes on the the tweaks and then about another 40 minutes on the league itself and where things are going and i think you'll really enjoy it thanks so much for coming on thanks for having me back on so when we originally were talking about doing this the the conversation was on things that the nba could do in the short term to improve the quality of their product and there are a couple different things and i i was going to let you pick where we started on that on those various kind of ideas yeah, I mean, I think it was kind of specifically the idea of what are things that are happening in the league that aren't quote-unquote basketball? And now I'm hesitant to talk too much about it because someone yelled at me on Twitter after I said that about uh, taking a charge in the open court on an unsuspecting player running down court. Like, uh, you know, why are you so arrogant? How do you get to define basket? what's basketball or not? And I don't feel that way at all. Like, that's, that's the debate, but it's just... The idea is here, we have to start with the concept of let's design the rules around encouraging basketball as it should be. Yeah, and really, the way that I think about it, and some people don't like it, is to think about it as an entertainment product. And so you think about, well, what takes away from the experience? And the reason that matters is because 
at a functional level, the quality of the product affects not only how many people watch it, but affects how much money the teams make, how much money the league makes, how much money the players make. And so the better the product, the better it is for, for everyone, especially if you can do things that also have positive externalities, you could call it, of reducing injuries. And I think that's one of the big things with charges for me is like you, you can get out of that. I was in the building when Mo Spates tried to draw an unnecessary charge on Kem Durant and caused, well, and was a, a but-for cause of one of his injuries. Yeah. I mean, I my one concern with entertainment is I feel like that turns off a certain segment of people who otherwise might be on board with us because they start saying, well, why don't we have a four-point line and a five-point line? You know, why don't we have Harlem Globetrotters tricks out there? Why have a travel rule? Because you could do a lot of cool stuff if you don't travel. Fair but, point. To me, so that's why I've kind of shifted my tone. And obviously, one of the things that's going to come up in this is the hack a shack, since I have become, I guess, the uh, the leader of the movement against it in some ways. People object to object to it for a variety of reasons, but you know, I think there's a lot of people who are like sympathetic. Yeah, it's no good for the game, but just make your free throws, which is an argument that bothers me on several levels, but again, a separate issue. And so I've moved, I've given up on that argument entirely. And my argument is strictly, this is just not basketball. It's not, you know, it's a Bill James quote that I used in the original piece I did on this last spring. Anytime there are rules changes, he was talking about college basketball, but NBA is similar. The league saying to players and coaches, Let's stop messy around and let's play basketball. And that's, I think, what we're looking at here. Yeah, I think that's a great point. And also, it can work as a unifying thing. And what I think is most potent for me about the idea of Hackashack and all of that is that it, it kind of straddles both those lines because whether or not you consider the entertainment part of it, it's a completely kind of separate thing from basketball. And it just. It just detracts so much. I mean, the, in the in the piece that you did more recently, you know, there was the I love the the Nate Duncan tweet about having basically there were two games on and they were both mired in Hacka at the same time, and that doesn't help anyone. <laughs> no, that was a uh, I was so glad that he tweeted that and captured it because it was it was such a great moment that you know highlighted the the increase in hacks so far this year uh, beautifully. But yeah, it's when I think of it is. It, you can't go too far with this argument, but would this exist at other levels of basketball? And something like the Hack-A-Shack, as Nate has pointed out, doesn't exist at any other level of basketball. Maybe once in a blue moon happens in college. I saw some tweets the other night about it. Apparently, UTEP was doing it. And there's not really a rule against that in college, but teams just haven't used it. There is a rule against it at other levels. And it's just something you would never do because when you're playing basketball at its fundamental form – you know, fouling people is not supposed to be a positive. It's supposed to be a thing you're trying to avoid. And also, for me, and we'll talk about this probably a little bit later, is that cleaning that part of it up will also elim- will reduce the kind of some of the issues that come with foul outs. Because, I mean, you had that where I think it was Tim Duncan in the playoffs used a foul on a hacka and then ended up, he, he didn't, I don't think he fouled out of the game, but he ended up being pulled because he got in foul trouble. And so, I think that some of these issues can also help one another and just make it a make it a better game that reward you know that rewards the right things and also rewards basketball plays. I mean, to me, the the one that crystallized it for me was what I'm calling the JJ Redick piggyback ride, which is just so blatantly not basketball that I haven't really seen many people try to defend that as being the sport that we all love. 
Exactly. That is where it becomes a, a clown show or a circus. And that's one of the things I wanted to do, you know, last year. We didn't, weren't able to put this together, but clip together some of the videos of like DeAndre Jordan running away from intentional fouls and Patty Mills chasing him and just highlight the absurdity of it because you can't defend it with a straight face when you're confronted with that part of it. Yeah, and I mean, as Bob Vigaris and numerous others have pointed out, that no matter what you do, you're not going to totally eliminate it. But the closer you get to making those as a part of real plays, you're going to make it closer to resembling what I think we all would, most of us would prefer as basketball. Yeah, if it's something that happens where a guy catches the ball under the basket and you have the opportunity to foul him to prevent him from getting off a dunk, like that's still benefiting from a foul, so I don't love it. But that's so much more clearly part of basketball is it's played at every level that it's totally different from just fouling a guy 50 feet away from the play. Yeah, and one of the things that I would that I, I personally feel, and this ties in actually with one of the other ones we'll talk about, which is Euro fouling, which is I think that fouls in your fouls when the opposing team has the ball in their own backcourt, I think is one differentiation point. And I believe European basketball already uses that. Yeah, I'm not sure exactly what the rule is. I think they just call it, you know, I mean, they have the intentional foul, but obviously obviously, you're allowed to Euro foul, and team, that's where it comes from, yes. obviously. Yeah, I, I, I think that there's there's an avenue in there just to, to, make, to reduce that in addition. But yeah, I mean, intentional fouling, that it, it, to me, it's just pretty clearly separately from basketball, and it's especially when it occurs in a, in a circumstance when it short-circuits something that would be entertaining. Right, and then that's what's I think especially happening at the end of the game, where teams have very clearly found this loophole in the rule. You know, you can debate how much the not having an intentional foul rule for the first forty-six minutes is a loophole. You know, because I I think that you know basically nobody conceived of the possibilities. They didn't make a rule against it any more than they made a rule against someone having two heads out there, uh, but. The last two minutes, there's the, the intent is very clear of what they're trying to do, and what they're doing meets the letter of the law, but in no sense does it meet the spirit of the law. And it might not even meet the letter of the law, which is why I feel like you could change that without even changing the rules. You just have to redefine what away from the play means. Yeah, and there, were, there was a weird circumstance for me with that in, in a Warriors game. I believe it was Festus Azili got fouled, and it was a mile away from the play, and for whatever re- and it was inside, inside the last two minutes, and they just didn't call it. And we're just sitting there like, wait, that's, like, even that's supposed to be within the, within the letter and the spirit, but they, the ref still didn't call it. And as you're right, that, that interpretation would help that. I don't think it would go all the way, but it would be a meaningful help. Yeah, I mean, you still probably would see the fouls on guys coming up to set screens. But again, there's there's a different level of choice. You've chosen to have the player be part of a play there. Having them just standing on the line, boxing out, is totally different. And it also is such a... The other thing that makes it so frustrating is that it's, there's this huge benefit you're deriving, even if you don't foul a bad free throw shooter. There's a bunch of rules, like you know the rule about you can't foul before the inbound pass is released, because the idea is otherwise... You know, you can save a couple seconds by just fouling right away. And that's clearly what you can do by fouling on the free throw. Yeah, it's it's almost exactly the same thing. But just because it's not it's not within that letter, it doesn't count the same way. Yeah, and I think it's if the NBA had anticipated this, they would have prohibited it. But no one really saw it coming. And that's, you know, there's a lot of these situations where there's a circular logic of, well, it's not against the rules, so it must be okay. And sometimes the rules can't be omnipotent. 
Yeah, and and so you get into those you get into those circumstances, and and for me th- that really also ties in with with eurofouling. So to to clarify it for def- for would you want to define eurofoul? You probably have a clearer definition in your head than I do. I mean, I think you know it's generally any foul to stop a fast break, but specifically the issue here is obviously the NBA has sought to prohibit this sort of thing, and they put in the clear path rule, but so that there was a bright line definition of it you know they ruled that the clear path only applies when the offensive player is beyond all defensive players basically if you're fouling someone from behind on a fast break but what you see with a lot of euro fouls is you know maybe there's one defensive player ahead of the ball but there's also an offensive player you know beyond him or even with him you know, it's a, or it's a three-on-two situation, and the defender whose team has just lost the ball just grabs the near the ball handler, you know, even though he's not the lead offensive player. So it, the clear path rule doesn't apply there, even though, again, it's the kind of thing that that's designed to present, prevent. And also the clear path rule, while well-intentioned, had the side effect of instead of being, it's funny I use the word intent, instead of being, as our mutual friend Ethan Trowitz-Strauss has said, it should be an intent call because that's really what it is, and then there would, it would be about that judgment. Making it a factual situation makes for clear path reviews, which also detract from the game in a, a couple of weird ways. Like I was thinking about this, I, I think I tweeted it on Saturday, that a team, because of how long those reviews are, if they were really talented at it, they could tactically use those to get extra rest for their guys. <laughs> yeah, it'd be tough because obviously the penalty is so harsh if you do get called for the clear path. And that's you know part of the issue here is the NBA, in order to prevent those fouls, made the penalty for them really harsh. So the difference between a clear path foul and a non-clear path foul because you get two shots in the ball is enormous. And it's kind of the luck of the draw you know, if you happen to foul someone while you're even with them or, you know, slight, they're slightly beyond you. Whereas, you know, if you had a slightly lower penalty but called it more frequently whenever there was an intentional foul, you wouldn't necessarily need to make it that big a difference. Yeah, and g- going back to what we were talking about before, I, I realized that I, one of the other points with it, we were talking about the idea of having a guy outside of the play is, I think that's a more fair punishment for a team having a bad free throw shooter than all of the other garbage that comes with the current rule. Having the player be out of the play? Yeah, so so let's say DeAndre Jordan, let's say DeAndre Jordan, you don't want him, you know, instead of having to pull him, you just don't have him near the play. Then you still get the entertainment value, you still get the team benefit of having a good player who's a, a talented defender, who's great on alley-oops, things like that, as opposed to what Hack-A-Shack or hack whoever becomes. The one thing I have heard from some people in the league that I think you know has probably a more realistic chance of getting past is intentional foul reform than completely outlawing it is saying that it is, uh, and you alluded to this earlier, illegal in the backcourt, but you know you, the player can't cross half court and the offense has to make that decision about whether they want to play four on five or not. Well, I think that gets into a realm which I personally don't love but understand which is where you go for a a partial solution and then hope that it works so that you can get to a more full solution but i mean that you know that that's kind of the same spirit it's just less clear than you know having let's say deandre in the birdman position just kind of on the edge of the on the edge of the action ready to do an offensive rebound but i would substantially prefer that to what we have right now same here i mean it's it's definitely improvement if not a full solution i and i think what you know, a lot of people in the league like to it, like about it is they feel that there should be some punishment for being a poor fell shooter, which, you know, to me is kind of odd that, 
Because again, if no one had ever thought to start intentionally fouling guys without the ball, you know, they wouldn't suffer any, any benefit, you know? So people say we're quote unquote rewarding poor free throw shooters, which is strange to me because the starting point is no intentional fouls, not the current system. Well, and there are parallels to this actually in the collective bargaining agreement too, which is that when basically when you have this much money on the line, people are going to find every single loophole they can and exploit it. And so an understanding of those kind of processes, and this is true in all walks of life that have specific rules and incentives like this, is sometimes you're going to realize that you made a mistake and you're going to have to fix it when you can. Yeah, I thought Nate put it well a couple weeks ago. I think this was after the Christmas game that, you know, especially those fouls in the last two minutes on free throws, there's something a lawyer would come up with, not a basketball coach. And I know there's some people that, you know, defend it because it makes the game more interesting strategically, but there's lots of things we could do to make the game more interesting strategically that would not make it more entertaining to watch or closer to the spirit of basketball. So I don't think that should necessarily be our criteria. Yeah, and I and I, I think that while free throw shooting is important, it is not the sole arbiter of whether a person is a good basketball player and should be on the floor for crunch time. I mean, it is important, and it's and if it flows as a part of the game, obviously that matters. There have been lots of moments and great moments, you could argue, in NBA history that have been swung by the capability of a free throw shooter. But there's something different about making that like the sole focus of a even like a one-minute segment of an important game. Right, and that's where, to me, it's different. People will say, well, are you not allowed to shade off a bad shooter, which actually the illegal defense rule for many years basically prevented, so that's a separate issue. But the issue here is there's a difference between five-on-five basketball where each player can compensate for the strengths and weaknesses of each other working together as a team and singling out one person to put them on the free throw line and force them to shoot free throws. That doesn't happen in any other sport. Yeah, I, I think that's a good way of putting it. And yeah, and, and you think about just what you can do when you open it up, and when you when you think about you just like where the game can go with things like that. Another weird one that I've been that I've been thinking about a little bit recently that is just they're just not calling it right is coaches being on the floor. Like I'm starting to worry that we're actually going to see a coach run into a player. Well, we did a few years ago. Jason Kidd, yeah. remember? So semi. So the, are you thinking of the deliberate one or the? Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> And so you're thinking it's just happening on accident? Yeah. Well, or, like, I mean, it seems like, they're, um, again, Paul Bugaris has done a nice job of talking about had the idea of coaches kind of distracting players and kind of that. that uh, to me, that, again, is getting outside of the realm of what I consider to be, you know, basketball. If all you're trying to do is distract the guy, then you shouldn't do that from the sideline. I mean, I was thinking about this last week. I attended the uh, Les Schwab Invitational High School Tournament just outside Portland and was thinking about some of these things if they happened, you know, in a high school game and just the uh, kind of outcry there would be about it because, you know, it's supposed to be an example for the kids and all that sort of thing, which it also comes up in the hack-a-shack. Like, what message are we shoot telling kids if they don't have to make their free throws, which is odd because what percentage of kids are going to make it to the NBA and be hack-a-shack candidates? It's a, a pretty low one. And, and I think that, you know, messages like stay in school and don't do drugs, that sort of thing, probably more important for the youth of America than make free throws, which is not really that important. I, I, ha- I can't make a free throw to save my life, and it hasn't stopped my professional career all that much thus far. But uh, anyways, to go back to it, if these things happen in a high school game, there'd be this huge outcry of like, you know, this is horrible coaching and leadership and everything like that. And somehow they're okay in the NBA with millions of dollars at stake. 
Yeah, it, it it bothers me in just kind of a basic kind of human level where it's just where I, I, I guess that's right to think about it in a high school game or I oftentimes think about it in a youth game because that's more of where my experience was both as a referee and as a player. I wasn't good enough to play in high school. And I think that there's just no benefit to it. I mean, when you, what I like to think about with all these kind of rules, I guess it's, again, background as being a lawyer, is what are you incentivizing and what are you disincentivizing? And so to me, you want to disincentivize anything that is negative conduct. And there are different ways to do it. Of course, the, the punishment is a very important part of it. But in most of these circumstances, the issue is not necessarily assigning a punishment. It's actually enforcing it. Right. I mean, I, you know, I think that that's often the, the, the difference is, you know, these situations where a rule is on the books and it doesn't get enforced and then it ends up, it doesn't matter whether you have a rule against it. And the other thing that that creates is a situation where you can have selective enforcement, which is why, you know, when Tim Donaghy was fixing games is, again, our good friend Bob Bulgaris has pointed out, a lot of what he was doing was things like calling defensive three-second violations and three-second violations, these things, these rules that are constantly being broken and only occasionally enforced. And that's one of the dangers you create by having that that gap between what the rule is supposed to be and how it is actually applied is that a rogue individual can kind of take advantage of that. And that's exactly why the waiting waiting on the whistle until you see whether the ball goes in or out bothers me so much. Because if a foul, it's a foul, then it's a foul either way. And I feel like that it just it just kind of encourages some weird conduct, and I just personally just hate it on a visceral level. Yeah, to me it bothers me on a process versus results level. And if we talk about officiating in general, I think one of the things that makes it difficult to have a conversation about this, and that the league's last two-minute report, even though I think they're generally a positive step, is kind of reinforced this notion that a call is either right or wrong. And I don't think that's how you can think about it, because you and I can look at the same contact on the same play and have different opinions about whether it was marginal contact or a foul. Like, there's never going to be a single definition of it, and I think we need to stop thinking of it that way. There's, you know, something that would be called... 50% of the time, something would be called 70% of the time, and then something that would be called 95% of the time, but very little that would be called 100% of the time. Yeah, there's a fundamental difference between the way basketball is officiated and, let's say, baseball, because baseball, almost all of the contact is, you know, it's in those specific timings, and it's, it's not really about the... The art, the art of it, it's just, you know, did the ball get there before the runner got there? But in basketball, it's all shades of gray. Yeah, and the other thing you have is obviously the, and this bothers a lot of people more, I think, than it bothers me, but is not a great thing, is just the effort to deceive referees. And whenever you bring up things like, well, we should get rid of the charge, and, you know, that's not a basketball play, then the immediate response that I always get is, well, what about Chris Paul drawing contact with the defender using his body? And it's right. I mean, I don't think it's as dangerous as a charge. I think that Anthony Davis play a few weeks ago that everyone kind of used as a flashpoint that didn't like this was more of a fluke than anything else because the contact is usually not as full speed as it is on a charge. But it's definitely, you know, again, a a thing a lawyer would do to try and take advantage of a loophole in the rule. Yeah, I think that the way that I've phrased the charge issue is you just need to, it needs to be thought about in a different way because, and again, this goes back to basketball. For me, Taking a charge is not defense. Getting into the right position and actually defending is defense. Yeah, I mean, I think there are certain situations where it can be. And particularly, I think here the compromise is probably if we start talking about just, 
the difference between drawing a charge as a help defender versus drawing a charge as a primary defender. Right. Because usually if you do it as a primary defender, it's because you've established good defensive position and just made it difficult for the offensive player to go anywhere. If you're doing it as a help defender, usually it's just you're trying to get run over. And I just don't consider trying to get run over an admirable part of de- type of defense. Yeah, that's a that's a great distinction to make, and I think that is that is really where the distinction is. And also, if you want to think about it in terms of the risk of injury, generally players are aware of the person who is guarding them, but if they're focusing on other things, like the most egregious to me are pass and crash because it's already out of the play. Right. And so that, both in terms of rewarding quote-unquote bad behavior, but also in incentivizing something that is dangerous... You you hit both of those on a passing crash, whereas on other ones, maybe you hit one or the other. And it's just so viscerally unsatisfying because the play is – that part of the play is over when you've passed the ball. Like the defense has already done its job in that part. So, you know, it's now a unne- completely unnecessary collision. Yeah, I, I and I think that, uh, again, when we talk about the idea of, you know, thinking about it at a lower level of play, if you – take out the the risk of what of what help defenders do i think that's something that helps basketball at every level i think that it would it would encourage players to do the right things and it it takes away an easy out and i think that anything that does that is something that's positive for rewarding the right things because it takes away something that while there are good players and and you know great players that that do charges it's to me it's it's usually a way out as opposed to being the primary strategy Well, you certainly think of it as being something that rewards lesser athletes. I mean, naturally, it's, you know, guys who are big and can block shots are going to try to do that rather than trying to take a charge. So for better or worse, it's a way for guys who can't don't have that ability to sort of compensate and provide some room protection. Are there any other things in this realm? There's one scorekeeping one that I'll talk about. But is there anything else in this realm that you think is a is kind of a, a family member of these issues? Let's see, I thought there was one more maybe that we had, but now I can't remember what it might have been. Well, so the, I'll, I'll, then I'll go through the other one that I have, which is a little bit different. It's something I've talked about in various capacities before, um, and Shane Patty is actually an advocate for this as well, though he hasn't he doesn't push it publicly as much, is the idea that end of half, end of quarter heaves should not count as field goal attempts because it, it's another one of those. It doesn't hurt anyone, but if you take away, take away the stat part of it, Players will do it all the time, and it's quite exciting. Right. I mean, that one to me is something of a no-brainer because, you know, first off, it it encourages more exciting basketball, and second off, it gets us more towards the real ability of players being reflected in the box score, and I think that's just generally a positive thing. That's that's another issue, by the way, with the Hackershack this year because it's gotten so far out of hand. Like, DeAndre Jordan's going to set the all-time record for free throw rate because of he's getting intentionally fouled. And it's this thing that doesn't reflect his actual skills or what's actually happening with the Clippers' offense whatsoever. It's just a complete bookkeeping quirk in some, on some level. Hey, maybe since he gives them so many half-court defensive opportunities, that should strengthen his defensive player of the year bona fides. <laughs> I hadn't thought about it that way. Doc, maybe don't tell Doc. Well, so Nate and I discussed last night that I'm – Complete, I'm a little bit dumbfounded by why he's so awesome in defensive RPM, and it would be hilarious if that was part of it. <laughs> I, <laughs> I don't think I don't think it is because you know obviously I'm keeping stats on uh, all of these intentional fouls this year, and I don't think the Clippers' defense is actually all that much better when he gets hacked. Which is an indictment of the Clippers. Yeah, they're giving up 113.8 points per hundred possessions on those ones, and you can only 
expect them to give up 106. Wow. Yeah. So that, that, that's interesting too. I mean, cause what, and another part of what bothers me in this weird way about Hakka is that teams haven't figured out the right way to, the right way to do it in the sense that, okay, if you are embracing that as your strategy, let's say you're the, let's say you're the fouling team. Well, then you want to make sure you have at least one guy on the floor who is, I would say, offensively gifted, but you're not going to use enough to have his fouls matter, and so you use that person as your primary fouler. And if you're the defensive team, you can play, you can shift your talent to be more defensively talented people unless you think that the other team is going to stop hacking, which most of the time they are not. Right. I mean, that's the one potential downside from the Fowley's standpoint is you don't have control over it, but a lot of times you want them to stop hacking. Like you, that's why you're taking your guy out. This has happened a lot of the time with Jordan and, and particularly with Andre Drummond. So you know if they do stop because of the fact that you've got all your your you know your second unit or your defensive minded players on the court, then in some sense you've won. Yeah, and I, and you can always because you can always make change that around. You know, you can affect that equilibrium. But I, I think in some ways, for me, it's more on the fouling side because you see these teams that like do it with their starters on the floor. It's like, what are you doing? You do you do it with your other guys and you beef up their fouls. Oh, that's the other thing. You've talked about this for years. I think you're completely right on it. Is the idea of foul outs? I think that's something. I have my own idea on it, but I think that there is a, a middle ground there that we can that we can do better than we're doing right now. Yeah, I advocated this a couple of years ago in the playoffs and have been a believer in it going back to, I think George Carl wrote about it in his uh, autobiography back in the late 90s. And, you know, my position is instead of having it be, you know, just complete, having a player completely be banned from the court, that you have the choice of a player's seventh foul and above. It's a technical foul each time, an additional free throw, free throw for the opposing team. And, you know, for most players, I think that would be enough of a deterrent that you'd probably put them on the bench, but it would allow you to keep star players on the court. Yeah. And so what, so what that does is again, it, it, it is. I think it's a more fair disincentive than the current current situation, especially when you consider how the way that fouls can be called. You know how there are so many shades of gray. Is that it? Kind of it provides the buffer for when a guy gets, let's say, two kind of ticky tack fouls. That instead of having to play, let's say, for whatever reason, even though he doesn't foul much, I'm thinking of Stephen Curry. Let's say instead of playing Stephen Curry 25 minutes, you can play him 32 minutes. That is better for everyone except for the opposing team. Yeah, it takes an element of the you know the excitement about a star player picking up fouls early uh, is the, the maybe the one downside. But again, that's not necessarily the way you want to lose. And there is still a penalty, I think, certainly because you know an extra free throw for each foul is a pretty big big deal especially you know presumably this is going to be happy a lot of times late in close games but again it gives you more flexibility more strategy and uh less less players on the bench would your preference be if they if the league implemented something like that that the the coach has to make an immediate decision like as soon as a player picks up a sixth foul or would it be a, a requirement for re-entry i i think you can re-enter i i think it's just knowing that you know as, as soon as you get to seven that's going to be a technical Okay, I, I think it's I think it's interesting either way from a tactical perspective. The idea that a coach has to make the decision on the fly versus that, and the only the only thing about it, of course, you have to make sure that the that the team that is getting the benefit, you know, the team that has gotten fouled six plus times by this guy, that they get to choose their free throw shooter. But that's the way it always is. 
Yeah, it'd be a standard technical foul at that point. Of course, you'd still have the issue of, like, LeBron James taking that technical free throw over Kyrie Irving because for whatever <laughs> reason he does that. But This is, by the way, borrowed from college basketball to some extent because that's what they do. Or from, or Actually, I should, should say from the NBA because this is what they do when teams are reduced to five players on the court and one of them fouls out. Is I think we saw with Robert Sacre with the Lakers against the Cavaliers a couple years ago and that came in laying on the bench game. And Don Nelson's record-setting win, when right. the because one of the Warriors players got hurt, so they had to. So there was this argument about whether they had to play the hurt player or whether they could bring the other player back in. Whereas in college, you can go down to four, and in some cases, even two players on the court, which does fascinate me on some level. Yeah, I, I've been intrigued by the idea every once in a while. Again, this is good go on just the concept thing of what these level players playing four-on-four, four, let's say, in overtime, like what that would look like compared to a five-on-five five game. Well, I'm very into the, that idea. Yeah, I mean, you think about how, how it's turned out for hockey. I mean, basketball is a sport where you can't do anything really like a shootout, but that would get that would definitely get you closer. And if you change the foul-out rules, I think that the other reason that it would help is for longer games, for overtime games, I've heard, I think I think it's Jeff Van Gundy has talked about the idea of you get an extra foul for overtime. I'm not as big a fan of that, but if you can bring players back in, I think that solves that problem anyway. Right. Do you think overtimes are too long? I would like to see it four minutes, yeah. I think it would be a little bit better if it was if it was a little bit shorter, but I don't think it's egregious right now. I just think it'd be a little better shorter. Yeah, it just seems to me like we're... It's a really long period when usually those games are just going to come down to the final minute anyway. Like, almost let's skip ahead to that. Though you do create, if I think with a shorter overtime, you do create the wonderful perverse, not perverse incentive, but the incentive that I've thought about for years, which is that because that extra possession in overtime, as opposed to where it balances in uh-huh. regulation, of having this like seven foot five guy on your team for the sole purpose of winning the winning the opening tip in overtime, which I completely support just on an entertainment, just on every level for my own satisfaction. I don't think this is a good idea, but what do you think about the idea of increasing the size of active rosters so that you could have more guys like that who are true specialists? I support it. You already know my idea that I think the teams under the salary cap should also yeah. be able to have as many guys on their rosters they can fit under the under the rules, which I would not include to active rosters. I'm not saying the Sixers should be able to put, have 20 guys suited up, <laughs> which actually would be kind of fun. But it I, would be kind of fun, but they'd run out of space courtside because of the fact that so many teams sell those seats. Yeah, and it. I, I'm I'm at the point now where I, I'm fine with incentivizing, if you want to call it that, owners that are willing to spend a little bit more for a better team. You know, like that really is the distinction right now between some of this. Is you know, like uh, let's say Dan Gilbert's probably the best example of this. You know, like if he might be willing to spend a little bit to have a seven foot three guy for that purpose, or I mean, he might be somebody like Willie Cauley Stein. We actually, I don't know if you saw it. Uh, I think it was Kale Schoenard had this discussion of who could, who could touch the highest on a backboard right now, which is actually kind of the spiritual analog of this. And it would be kind of fun to see, to see those kind of real specialists get a place in the league in, in this kind of way. And I think fans would actually really gravitate towards that because it would be players who maybe they could identify with a little bit more in some way. I think the one downside, as has been pointed out, is it kind of increases the cult of the coach if there's a lot more of this kind of platooning and strategy as opposed to, you know, encouraging versatile players who can do multiple things. Yeah, there is some of that. And I, when you said that, I immediately thought about how Scott Skiles would handle things if he could have 16 guys <laughs> in his rotation, which terrifies me to no end. Aaron Gordon would never play, except for one stretch in the second quarter where he scores 10 points. 
I think that it's one of those things like you you have to really think about it the whole way. And I think you would want to go on the sh- on the small end first. You know, maybe push it to fourteen and see how that works beyond beyond really pushing it beyond that. And I think that's that's really the way that for things like this that aren't as big, incremental improvements is probably the way to do it. Whereas when you have a big problem, you want to you always want to think of the big solutions, but you might not want to try it immediately. Yeah. While we're on the topic of rules changes, how do you feel about the coaches replay review or challenge? I actually think I, I don't love the idea of it, but I, what I've said for a little while now is that there should be a fourth official who is not on the floor who can unilaterally either that can unilaterally make decisions on things that the other refs might miss. So the example for me with, with that is, I believe it was in the game against the Cavs. Stephen Curry was called for a foul when he was was nowhere near the person who committed it, and there was no way to correct that kind of a mistake. So if a coach's challenge did that, I think that would be fine, but I think a better way of making those corrections would be a fourth official who is kind of has a different perspective on it but is still in the arena. And is maybe constantly watching the, the replay or, you know, exactly. Yeah, and so then, and that person then would have the responsibility of changing like twos to threes and things like that, and they could they could do that in a more on the fly, direct way than what hap- what happens now. And I, I think that's I think that's the way to kind of fix a lot of these. I actually think that concept should be in place in every sport, maybe even including baseball, but especially football. It has the same issue where when you are on the court, there are a lot of things you can do very well, but there is a a blind spot which is. In some ways, okay. You know, there's some people who like the kind of the nature of having an umpire and, you know, the strike zone can be a little bit wonky and things like that. But when it's easily correctable mistakes, there is no magic for me with that. There's no majesty with, you know, like what happened, I I think of um, Galarraga's perfect game. You know, like that was just a messed up call. I don't think that added to the majesty that that ump just straight up messed it up. And basketball, that happens sometimes in various ways. And if you can clean that up without wasting any time, I think that's even better. Well, I will say we probably remember that that non-perfect game much more than we remember if he had just thrown a perfect game, as rare as those are. Fair but enough. Yeah, I, I think that's a, a good thought because to me there's two contrasting things here, which is number one, the idea is to get it right, contrasted with how much time are we spending doing that. And to me there are a lot of replay reviews where once they go past a certain point, again to get back to my probabilistic idea – it probably could go either way. There's not going to be a definitive answer if you keep looking at replays past the first, you know, probably 30 seconds to a minute. Each second, additional second that goes down, the marginal value of that towards getting the call right is lower, and it becomes more excruciating to fans to sit through that review with every additional second. So to the extent that we can implement replay in an instantaneous, seamless, as you said, fashion, then I, I'm I'm all for that. Because, you know, there was a point a couple of years ago where I was, you know, having originally been pro-replay, was inclined to say, hey, let's forget about replay altogether. It's all going to even out in the end, and this is just not worth it. Yeah, I'd actually, the way I've thought about it before, if you're going to have the, the refs on the court do it, is they should have a 24-second clock from when they actually start looking at the replay. And so you, you kind of do a shot clock, and if they can't make a determination, then they go with the call on the floor. And the other part of that, which they've done a better job of recently, but you should be allowed to make a call saying, I don't know. So you don't have to do that. I don't know, but I'm going to point one direction. And then that becomes the assumption. I think, it. you know, I'm somebody who in, in pretty much all walks of life, I think that there is an inherent value in saying that you are unsure and giving everyone the opportunity to make sure. 
Yeah, I agree with that. I think there's a lot of research out there that the very act of making a choice one way or another in an uncertain situation changes your opinion going forward and makes it less likely for you to change that original opinion, even though it wasn't very strongly held. Yeah, yeah, I think I think that's it, it is a really kind of fascinating part of, of that. I'd love to learn more about the psychology of it. But I, just from a practical perspective, you can see it, you know, like if you if you say that it hit this guy's hand and you had like, let's say, a 51 percent, 51, 49 in your brain, then but all of a sudden that makes it like 80, 20. Like that's just the way it works with the way they do the calls. So doing that and just saying we're not sure and having a having a fourth official i think i think that it doesn't fix everything but it gets a whole heck of a lot closer than we are now i also think that's a psychological danger of twitter because there's all these ideas that were once floating around in our heads but we weren't expressing them except maybe to the person sitting next to us at games or while we were watching games and now all of a sudden they're out there in print for everyone in the world to see and they even though you know, Twitter is so ephemeral and they just sort of disappear out there. Again, the very act of voicing these things and putting them out there makes us cling to them more strongly. It certainly does. I was actually thinking about that for whatever reason. I, I really chuckle whenever something hits my feed and somebody like favorited something that somebody sent to me or I sent to them like six months ago. And it's like, how did you find this? How did this come into play? And so there is, it is ephemeral, but at the same time, every once in a while, somebody digs something up and I don't care. You know, I, I stand by, I, in that way, I kind of stand by what I say. You know, if it's sarcastic, obviously it's sarcastic. I don't say everything I say is the truth, but I, I kind of like the idea of having those short thoughts out there because you can have these conversations in a different way. Like, you know, the way that you and I are talking about these things, we've already had our arguments honed, not only for you been preparing your pieces, but just by having these conversations, both with the people that we meet personally, but also with the larger basketball collective. Yes, although it is a very difficult th argument to have over 140 characters. So perhaps this is a positive of raising the limit to 10,000. For some people. <laughs> But yeah, so let's let's move on to the league in, in a broader sense. One of the places to start with this, I, I and I think is actually kind of maybe maybe the most important thing that's going on right now is how many teams do you think have a a serious? You can define it how you want, but have a legitimate shot right now of winning the title. I would say probably four. I mean, I think that you know the Clippers are the most borderline case, but. You know, it seems that Cleveland is probably the only team in the East that rises to that level. And then obviously Golden State and San Antonio in the West. And I do think Oklahoma City is at that level, although, uh, you know, depending when this comes out, I may have uh, put out an argument about a move that I think could get them to that level. I think that Oklahoma City is definitely there because their ceiling is super high. You know, this is a team that we haven't seen at their kind of at their quote unquote best, actually, since they made the finals. And of course, they don't have James Harden anymore, but why I've thought for a while that they would be a compelling matchup for both of the Western Conference teams that are above them is that when they succeed, it's hard to counter because Kevin Durant's the best isolation scorer in the league. So what do you do against that? I mean, he's a good passer. It's it's something that when they're on, but they just don't have the right surrounding talent to really get it all the way. Yeah, one thing I was looking at today sort of related to that, but not really, is uh, they have four guys on their roster who have played at least 250 minutes with a PER in the single digits. Wow. Uh, Collison, Waiters is just below, uh, Singler, and then I believe DJ Augustine is the fourth. So he's uh, he's already out of the rotation, and Singler sort of is. But still, that's there's only one team in the league. New Orleans is the only team in the league that has more than that on their roster. And that's because their team was decimated by injuries. Yes. 
Yeah, and I, Oklahoma City, that that is an issue for them. Wait, what I've the way that I've talked about it is that they just don't have enough depth on the wing to facilitate even the small ball lineups that we've all wanted to see with them. I mean, if you want to talk about the oh, they should play Durant at the four and Ibaka at the five. Well, who the heck is playing the two and the three? Exactly. I mean, they have a hard enough time finding one wing to finish games, assuming they have Steven Adams at center, which most of the time they have. So finding two of them has been downright impossible. And all of this may be factored into the story I have written. <laughs> Maybe. But that gets into a, a conversation about that. I So I wrote about this this week for the Sporting News, actually came out right before we recorded this, about the Clippers. And the way that I couched the piece, which argued that the Clippers should trade Chris Paul in the near term, is... At a certain level, when you're ownership, and it really this is an owner's decision, not anybody else's, is you have to decide how you are defining success. And for me, that's why the Clippers are so fascinating, is they're at a level where a lot of teams will be pleased. You know, if you're you're probably going to host a playoff series, you have a very good chance of winning at least one playoff series, but you're probably not going to win a title. So you have to figure out if that is enough. Because if that's enough, you're fine. But if that is not enough, then you have to start thinking the big thoughts and the scary thoughts. Yeah, I thought that was a really fascinating piece. I mean, obviously, it's not the first time that anyone's broached the idea of, you know, the Clippers making a big trade. I mean, Doc Rivers has been talking for a while here about, you know, if we don't have to, if we don't get over the hump this year, something is going to have to give, something's going to have to change. And, you know, it's obviously not, it's pretty obviously not Blake Griffin because he's the youngest of their big three and much better than DeAndre Jordan, who's closer, close to him in age. So, you know, unless you can get some sort of crazy Blake Griffin, Kevin Durant trade like people threw out like several years ago, you know, you're probably not trading him. Jordan doesn't have that kind of value, I don't think, especially because, you know, the the market for centers I don't think is that terrific right now. So it it probably is CP3 as the guy if you're looking to make that kind of move. The one question to me that comes up is, you know, you posited in there him going to the Lakers and then the Lakers and Clippers ending up in battle for free agents in 2017. And that to me is precisely, I think, why you wouldn't make that trade is because anything you have to, you do probably at this point is that Clippers organization has to be predicated on how could we get a free agent to join Blake Griffin? Yeah, because you, you're not going to make that sacrifice without a corresponding return, especially when you think about that they're, they're still going to be a playoff team this year. So it's not like you can do what, what let's say, what Golden State did when they acquired Andrew Bogut and then just fell down to keep their draft pick. You're not going to do something like that if you're the Clippers. So that does change your outcomes. And you can't be sure, you know, let's say, because this class is pretty shallow in terms of the guys who can make a real big impact. I mean, if what this really ends up with, the second best guy in this class is probably Al Horford. Al Horford is, I would say, is better than DeAndre Jordan, but it's not miles better. It's That's not going to make them this title contender. It, but what I think what, what the difference with the Clippers is, is also that some of the best guys in 2017 are point guards, and you think that they wouldn't want to play with Chris Paul. Right. I mean, inevitably, that's the case. So I, you know, I think the other issue you run into is who can, you know, you're probably going to have to sell for 75 cents on the dollar because it's very unlikely that anyone will have a single prospect or even two prospects that come close to approaching Chris Paul's value, which sort of highlights how remarkable the timing was for another thing I'm writing about later this week on the, you know, Kevin Love trade for them to be able to get Andrew Wiggins in return. 
Yeah, and you th- you think about how rarely those trades work out, but at the same point, part of why part of why I wanted to write the Chris Paul piece is that there are, there's a group of players, and this is another piece I'm going to write in the near future, who I would be terrified to be the team that signs them to their next contract. And that's not to, that's not to denigrate Chris Paul's ability as a player. He's a, a clear-cut all-star right now. He's an unquestionable Hall of Famer. But his next contract is going to be terrifying. And the the historical precedent for smaller point guards in their 30s, especially in their mid-30s, you know, it's basically John Stockton and everyone else. And so that isn't to say that they won't work out. It's just a very, very dangerous bet when you have other pieces that are really good. You know, if you're a team that's in trouble or you're a team that needs an identity, then you can do something like that. But if you have an, a potential MVP candidate in his late 20s, that's a very dangerous game. And you didn't even mention, you know, Chris Paul's knee history as Correct. far as losing meniscus, which is very frightening in the long term. You know, the guy who, to me, best exemplifies this is someone who's long been linked with Chris Paul, Dwight Howard. And that's part of why I wrote that the Rockets should explore trading Dwight Howard, because I don't think they should have much interest in giving him his next contract because of the fact that, you know, like the Clippers, they can be a free agent destination and potentially do better with that money. I mean, I, you know, I think the concerns are much stronger in Howard's case because he's already slipped from that superstar level that, you know, CP3, even as recently as last year, was still at. But our mutual friend Ben Golliver and I had this conversation uh, a few weeks back uh, when I was writing that about you don't want to be the team that pays someone their fourth NBA contract. Those historically have not worked out very well. I mean, Darren Williams is a good example of that. That might have been his third contract because he was older when he came into the league and, and contracts were longer. But, you know, that's kind of the, the, the template. Isn't Kobe's, would Kobe's fourth contract be his current one? Because I think it might be with the way that length's worked out. I, you know, I happen to have his basketball reference page up, so let me see here. But yeah, you're while you're looking that up with Dwight, Dwight was the other guy I was thinking of. And if there's a group of individuals that have a scarier track record in their early 30s than small point guards, it's bigs with back issues. I mean, that's the other, or foot issues, of course. Those are the other two. And Dwight, I think you're right that Dwight is an even clearer example because Chris Paul, even if he loses a half a step or a step, I think he can still do a nice job running an offense. He's such a smart player. He's such a cerebral player. But if you're a, a rim protector in particular, and you can't get to the places you used to get to and you can't jump the way you used to jump, that changes your value in a way that is kind of precarious instantly. Which is funny because usually we think of centers as the ones that are going to age well and, and guards like small guards, like you mentioned, as being the troublesome ones. You know, CP3, I think, you know, Stockton is clearly the hope because that's, you know, there was a while where he was sort of between paths. You know, people were trying to figure out who's this guy like. I think Isaiah Thomas came up a lot when he was in New Orleans. And then after he had that meniscus surgery, he changed his style a little bit and it became much more clear that Stockton was the best comp for him. So, you know, there there is some precedent for it, although John Stockton may be an ailing. That's the problem, like, whenever, when you're looking at that, like, when I did the stat that only only five five guards, six two or shorter, have ever had PER seasons over twenty after their after their their age thirty one season or later. You look at it and it's just like Jerry West and John Stockton, and you're like, okay, well those two guys, th- those are the guys that you don't want to say they're the precedent because they're so far out of the realm of everyone else. Right. 
I mean, CP3 may be out of that realm himself. I mean, he, he may eventually point to him and that is the third example of this, but I don't know if I would necessarily want to bet on it. But by the way, it was Kobe. This is Kobe's fifth contract. His fourth was the extension he signed in 2010 that covered the 2011-12, 2012-13, 2013-14 seasons. So he had two healthy years, and then the the one he missed almost entirely. Yeah, I think and I think Joe Johnson's on his fourth one right now. Um, <laughs> well, Joe Johnson's a story altogether. Seven-time All-Star Joe Johnson. <laughs> Well, actually, that's a very small point, but it is something that matters to me. Do you? Does the All Star format bother you? You know, the way that we vote for starters doesn't really bother me because it is for fans. I, I think that you know it is does become an issue when you look at you know someone like Joe Johnson because of the fact that the precedent, as I looked at last year, is basically everyone with seven plus All Star appearances has eventually gone into the Hall of Fame, and it's hard to think of Joe Johnson as a Hall of Famer given his career. Uh, to me, the easy fix, I, I would, number one, expand the rosters. I advocated for this last year. They've been the same size for five decades, even though the league has expanded multiple times in that span. So people talk about them being watered down, but it's really quite the opposite. But more importantly, I think there are very good reasons to maintain conferences throughout the season in terms of travel and, and for the playoffs. But there is no good reason to me to maintain conferences for the All-Star game. Yeah, especially when it can lead to these really strange disparities that persist for years. And if the goal is to have the best product for the fans, then why should you ha- make sure that you have to have the same number of guys in the East if the West is better or vice versa? Yeah, and again, there's no real downside to this. It's not like we're losing that hatred, hated rivalry between the East and the West that fuels the excitement for the All-Star game. Also, I still stand by my opinion that I, you would have to do it as like a round robin, but... U.S. versus Warriors versus World would be quite fun. <laughs> it would definitely be entertaining. The other thought I had one time is we should pick two separate all-star rosters. We should pick one that's like the actually the 12 most deserving players and use that for historical purposes. And then we should just have the players you want to see in the all-star game and have that, have that be the guys that actually play. Yeah, I've had that I've had that idea before too. Um I actually had this with both the dunk contest and the All-Star game. If you really wanted to push it in the fan perspective would be to have the last spot in the game, let's say, let's say we're abolishing the conference concept and allow players who are not in the NBA but who are actual basketball players. So like Justin Bieber would not be eligible, but <laughs> but Ben Simmons would be. Have those guys be eligible for that just to see what happens with it. I'm just, for me, it's just like you throw a bunch of st- throw a bunch of data at the wall and just see what happens. I would just be fascinated to see that. Also, the original inspiration for that was to put Andrew Wiggins in the dunk contest when he was at Kansas. I'm just hoping that the believers manage to listen to this and they're all over you for not believing that he's an actual player. I will give you a very short story on that. So when I met Tass Mellis and J.E. Skeets years before, like when I had just started as a writer and they, before they became the starters when they, when they were doing Basketball Jones, they were a little bit disappointed that I had been credentialed to cover the celebrity game in L.A. and they had not. And I explained to them that the downside of doing what I did is that I was going to be hearing a scream at a pitch that would, would probably deafen me for two hours and they did not have to, and they acknowledged that that was a legitimate point. I, I will admit that I've been unhappy at times that I have to ch- I've had to choose between the rookie challenge and uh, the celebrity game because I would like to cover both of them at the All-Star Games that I have attended. I think it would be fun to do a basket, some sort of basketball game of people who actually have that in their background somewhere. Like I think it's like, Or like players, I understand why they can't for, for logistical reasons, but like players who play other sports who are actually good at basketball. Like, I think it'd be fun to, like, I, as somebody who's played with, you know, college-level athletes 
in other sports in basketball, it's actually really fun to watch. I mean, that gets us closer to the rock and jock ideal that I think on some level is at the heart of the celebrity game. It is. And also they should totally incorporate the extra net the <laughs> for, for, the, for the rookie game or something. I mean, they need to do something for that to make it fun. Oh, also the other esoteric thing like this, which I, as you know, I support in everything is I, I, I think it would be fun if for the all-star game and for the playoffs, if teams could pick, if they could in the all-star game, pick their teammates. I think that would be really fun and lead to a whole bunch of random personal animosity, which I think is sorely needed in the league right now. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, it would it definitely would lead to that. Like if uh, LeBron chooses Chris Paul over Kyrie Irving and just leads to just a whole bunch of rampant speculation right before the trade deadline. What was fascinating to watch uh, which teammates, the guys that, you know, that group that tweeted their all-star picks earlier this week had. Yeah, it, I mean, yeah, I saw that. And also I was thinking about that in terms of LeBron's letter and just like blatantly not including everybody who was in the who was in the Wiggins love train, <laughs> just just kind of mean in a way. Look, it, it helped all of us journalists out, made it much easier to connect those dots. It, it really did. And the Wiggins trade, I, I've thought I think about that sometimes because Wiggins is better than I thought he would be. And I give him credit for that. But I think that he would not be a great fit in many ways. For this Cavs team, he would bring something that they didn't, but he would have probably made, you know, the Shumpert trade would have been, wouldn't have happened, probably would have been very different. I'm writing about this Friday, so no comment. Okay, fair enough. <laughs> what else do you think are the are the lingering stories in this league? We can talk about the race to the bottom, which is suddenly heated up now. Yeah, I mean, I think the other story related to how many championship contenders are there is what does that end up meaning for the trade market? Because, you know, there's not last year, I think we saw teams kind of really trying to top each other because they saw an opportunity wrongly, as it turned out, because Golden State was so much better than everyone else in the West. But you had, you know, Memphis adding Jeff Green. You had Houston picking up Corey Brewer and Josh Smith over the course of the year. You had Portland adding Aaron Aflalo at the deadline, all these moves like that. And I'm not sure who's going to make those kind of moves this year. I mean, you know, maybe it's one of those East teams trying to distinguish themselves in that race for second, where it seems like, you know, there's very little separation between second and 10th in the conference. Maybe it's a team like New Orleans that is just trying to get in the playoffs in the West or Sacramento, where, you know, they're very clearly thinking win now. And no matter how small the uh, the goal is, it's still worth achieving. But it could be a really relatively quiet trade deadline if there aren't that many buyers and maybe not even that many sellers because so many teams are still in the playoff race. I think it's going to be a quieter one, but there are two types of flavors of moves that we'll see. One is the the desperate owner ones. I think that, you know, the the greatest desperate owner move to me in recent history was actually done on July 1st, which was the Kings trade, which is yeah. magnificent and I could talk about forever. But the other the other kind of flavor of it, which I think we will see a little bit, and this is another thing I'm going to write eventually um, that's in kind of both of our wheelhouses is somebody's going to be smart and take on a player who has who is under contract for next year. And basically the idea of saying this player is a better use of our cap space than cap space. And there will be I think there will be one or two of those moves. And we will talk about it afterwards as those were some of the better. Those were some of the better moves of the, let's say, from January to July that happen because teams are going to spend money like drunk sailors on short leave. I mean, they're going to have to on some level because of the fact that there's so much money they, that most teams have to spend just to get to the salary floor, let alone to get to the salary cap, and so few players out there. So, yeah, the marginal cost of a win in free agency next year you know, could be 
like twice what it was this year. It, it really could be an incredible leap uh, because of that fact. And yeah, it's created this interesting situation where in the past, you know, the issue was teams always sh- shot themselves in the foot by signing guys to too long contracts, you know, role players who lost most of their value by the end of it. You can still do that. I think Oklahoma City probably did with Kyle Singler last summer, but it's getting increasingly difficult to do. And now it seems like the longer the contract, the, assuming it was signed, you know, in, far enough in the past that the salaries run at the old scale, the more valuable it becomes. Yeah, Damari Carroll might be a good example of that. You know, he signed signed early, signed a longer contract, and you know he 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 should be a nice fit with that. And that also, what you're talking about there is also ties in with something I wrote about a little bit for the Sporting News. As I've struggled struggled to convey to people why this summer is going to be so insane, is the idea and the Kevin Durant piece I wrote actually kind of got part of the way there. But the, the big thing is if teams need to clear space the players they're going to be moving this summer are actually good. Like the, the I've used the term the Nene test, which is basically the asset test if a guy's a positive or a negative. Almost any team that is looking to clear space can do it because the guys that are under contract are going to look good. Yeah, and again, because the alternative is so high that... Uh, yeah, I mean, I think it's a little bit similar to 2010 when teams did move some pretty good players to clear enough cap space for the LeBron pursuit. I mean, you recall... Washington getting a first-round pick with Kirk Heinrich and then managing to flip him like six months later for a first-round pick. That was a a pretty incredible piece of business on their part. And I think you could see some deals, you know, sort of in that vein uh, in terms of level of play, not in terms of probably the draft compensation. If a player like a Duran or Horford, you know, one of those truly elite players wants to go somewhere, the answer this year, unless they want to go to Cleveland, is they can't. And so those teams would would be in this kind of weird segment. But what makes this year different than almost any other year is that you have this, what you could call the tragedy of the commons, which is the idea that there are so many teams that are going to have space that what happened with Utah and the Warriors with the Andre Iguodala situation won't be able to happen, which is that they were able to exert this pressure and the Warriors had so much of an incentive to do it that they gave up two first round picks. Those picks aren't going to be super bad because the Warriors are incredibly good. But if, I don't know, if you want to say, if you want to say Houston, whoever you want, the Warriors, whoever, if the, if the player of their dreams decides to go there, the Clippers, if they made the Chris Paul trade, or even if they didn't make the Chris Paul trade, like, if that's where they want to go, those teams are going to be able to make that happen. Yeah, I mean, the interesting question is how much free agents will really consider them. I mean, LeBron, ultimately, that, that first time in 2010, I don't think he even gave a meeting to teams like Dallas and Maybe Houston was in this category, although they were probably still rebuilding at that point. But the teams who would have had to make a trade to create that cap space, he ended up only really negotiating with teams that already had the cap space, which I think is generally what we've seen from free agents. So it would be a little bit of a paradigm shift to see them seriously consider teams that would need to make a move. Dwight Howard is a trailblazer in this respect. (laughs) Yes, I guess he was with the Warriors. Yeah, I mean, didn't, didn't work out and pissed Andrew Bogut off, but that's the way it went. I mean, it, it ultimately won them a championship. It, it really did. And, and that, I mean, the Warriors, the, the, what's been so crazy, and it all really comes from Stephen Curry having what was a justifiable contract at the time, but has turned into one of the best contracts in the history of the league, is that it has made all of these insane possibilities over the course of it, also the fact that they collected all these assets in like a three-year span, that they've been involved in so many crazy possible near misses, including and the ones that they actually did. 
Yeah, I mean, you look back at each step of the way where it could, might not have happened the way it did, you know, the Bogut trade. I mean, that obviously was highly controversial at the time in the Bay Area. And, you know, specifically what got Lake booed uh, at Rick Barry's jersey retirement. You look at, you know, what if David Lee doesn't get hurt in training camp last year? Do they ever figure out just how amazing Draymond Green is? Or is he still coming off the bench now? I mean, all those questions like that. Clay, Clay Thompson, Kevin Love trade. I mean, yeah. and also the, the the Clay one is also an avenue into the, the craziness that is the Kevin Love trade because Flip Saunders got so fortunate with how that turned out that he basically the best offer came after everything else had fallen off the table. I mean, it'd be, it'd be interesting to see in hindsight how well the Clay Thompson trade would have worked out. I mean, obviously, you know, I don't think it would have been as good for them as the Wiggins trade, but you know, they, they still would have been getting a guy who now has become a top five shooting guard, certainly in the league. And, you know, any of our concerns about, oh, he might get overpaid because they're going to have to give him a max extension if they trade for him. Well, it turns out a max, ex- max extension for Clay under that salary scale would be a bargain right now. So it, it almost uh, could have worked out, I think, for them either way. Yeah, and if and if there, that trade had also included Harrison Barnes, which it might have, that would have given them right. another nice depth piece. And also the insanity for me that would have been if if somehow the Warriors had ended up with Zach Levine, just for to have him in a situation <laughs> that would actually work for him would have been exciting. Ah, uh, yes, that would have uh, he could have really fulfilled his inner Z- Jamal Crawford as a scoring six man off the Warriors bench. Yeah, Jamal Crawford is a Warrior, which most people forget, but I was a partial season ticket holder that season before I started covering the team. Yeah, I actually forgot that happened until until I wasn't even thinking of that reference. But he did he he didn't score fifty in Golden State, did he? No, I think he scored fifty against Golden State. Okay. But but yeah, but I think just briefly before we before we part ways, I think that what what has happened in the last week or so, well, two weeks, is Phoenix falling apart has suddenly made the bottom of the league substantially more interesting to me. Yeah, I mean, for a while there, you know, I wrote about this on Sunday, the odds of teams getting the number one pick and. I felt like, was it just academic with Philadelphia and L.A. because they're locked into the top two spots? Uh, you also can add Brooklyn losing Jared Jack to a torn ACL and increasing their chances, I think, of, of falling further or at least not climbing further in the standings. Yeah, and so now now Phoenix kind of where they can fall into it. They've also they've lost to they lost to both the Lakers and the Clippers. I mean, the Lakers and the Sixers, right? They did, yeah. Yeah, so I mean, they're they're in that spot. You don't know how far they're going to go, and of course, they have the coaching situation. But what the other kind of aspect of that, which is something that I always care about, is the idea of you know with pick protection, and really the one that's lingering with that is Sacramento. Who with Sacramento, it's not that they're it's not that they're pushing for it, but the idea that this could be this crazy incentive if they end up missing the playoffs is that they keep their pick because it's top ten protected. Yeah, it's interesting incentives here because, you know, basically they're going to have to make a decision probably with a couple weeks left in the season. Do we want to push for a playoff spot or do we want to, you know, go back and ensure we keep our pick? And they're not going to have probably perfect information because they're going to probably be right on the borderline where they have a chance at a playoff spot, but also certainly no guarantee of one. Yeah, and so the worst scenario would be you give up, like, the 12th pick, and that's certainly a possibility, especially with the way that the West is shaking out. I mean, I think the expectation was, oh, well, the the ninth and 10th best teams in the West, those are going to be, you know, the two best teams that don't make the playoffs. But right now, that's it's it's certainly possible, but it's I wouldn't say it's likely right now. 
No, I mean, I think that we can look at, you know, Utah is probably likely to play better going forward. Obviously, they're going to get Gobert back before too long here, and that's going to make a huge difference for them and, and favors who has been out for an extended period with these mysterious back spasms. So, you know, for them even to still be in the playoffs at this point is probably still an accomplishment. Do we think New Orleans has any chance of getting in the in the playoff picture? Sure, they have they have a chance just because you also have the odds that one of the teams, let's say in the bottom four of the playoff picture, just falls off a cliff. Let's say somebody, heaven forbid, somebody gets hurt. You know, like there's a possibility that somebody else falls and opens the door for them as well. Houston is the bizarre one here because, you know, I think you look at the eight teams that are currently in the playoffs and say they're probably going to be the eight teams at the end of the season. But how much, you know, is Houston still going to stay in this six, seven, eight range, the, this below 500 range, or are they ever going to make a run? Like, what what is going on there? Yeah, that's a big question. And also, what do they want to do? Because they have all these, if you want to call them potential assets, that are about to turn into pumpkins. Because they not only Dwight Howard, you know, with his situation, but Terrence Jones, Demo, like all these players. And so when I think about, you know, if if I were Daryl Morey, like, would I be thinking about making some wholesale changes? Because you're probably not going to get into that group. Your odds are you're not going to, you know, win a title this year. And if all of those players are about to become overpaid or, let's say, less palatable, then are you willing to do that? And could, it, could it, a, a thinned out Houston team still make the playoffs? Yeah, I mean, they probably could because that's the one upside is they've got a lot of relatively interchangeable pieces. The downside is they haven't gotten a lot better when since guys like Modi Yunus got back in the lineup. But, you know, now with Capella in the mix in the front court, they've got, you know, more guys that are competent rotation players than they have playing time. I mean, even Montrez Harrell has given them some good minutes at times this season. So, you know, they could almost make some trades without missing players and then potentially strengthen somewhere else. They're the only guy I think that is a lock for them is Harden. You know, everybody else, I think that if the right offer came about, if I were their GM, I would consider moving it. And I don't think that's too far off of the way that, that they are. I don't think they're super attached to anybody. No, I mean, uh, you know, when you say, are they considering making wholesale changes? I think Daryl Morey is always considering that. And uh, one of my theories about this is I think that Daryl thinks that he probably on average wins every trade he makes. So what's the best way to increase the value of trading? It's to make as many trades as possible if each of them you're winning. And to a point, I, I think there's there's a case there. I mean, they have done a, a pretty good job in a vast majority of them. I, I'm still disappointed that KJ McDaniels isn't playing much, but they got him on a great contract. And Beverly, you know, Beverly's on a backups contract, and he can play more minutes than that. He's a guy that I would consider keeping. But Beverly is one of those players that I'm thinking about. Like, I think there's going to be this crazy trade market starting probably like July 12th or July 15th of this year. And he's the type of guy, and the other person with this, if he stays on the Clippers, is Chris Paul, who all of a sudden, those type of guys look so much better. Yeah, I mean, the, you know, there's going to be teams that miss out on free agents, and what are you going to do then? I think that's that's what you're getting at, right? Yeah, sadly, they can't overpay Monte Ellis this year, so they're going to have to overpay <laughs> somebody else. Well, God, the Pacers, the Pacers, every once in a while I think about that, I'm like, you look at all the positives that they have, and then you realize that they're spending, is it like $17 million on Monte and Rodney Stuckey combined? That sounds about right. God. But I like a lot of what they have. I mean, you and I, I think we're both on the Miles Turner train. Yeah, I mean, he hasn't gotten a chance to be a big part of it because of that injury. The the contract that really looks great for them, in, uh, with the benefit of hindsight at this point, is C.J. Miles. Yeah. 
Like how many teams could use CJ Miles? Imagine CJ Miles in Oklahoma City. Whew, yeah, he'd be he'd be their best their best not uh, he'd probably be their best player outside of their four outside of their top four guys. Yeah, I think so. Well, yeah, and and Max Player and a scanner. Um, Who, by the way, once signed an offer sheet with the Thunder back right. in 2008, and the and Jazz it got matched. Yeah. yeah, how many how many good role players have gone through the Jazz? <laughs> a lot. Like it's it's shocking, and then some of those guys, of course, have gra- like Paul Millsap have graduated beyond role player. But I mean, Wes Matthews was there, um, Damari Carroll was there. It's pretty incredible. Yeah, it's testament to their ability to find these guys and get value out of them on cheap contracts before they move on and make a lot more somewhere else, usually. Yeah, and and, and there, that is one of the competitive advantages that still exists in the league. Is that a segue to talk about the Philadelphia 76ers? If you want to. And uh, how they're no longer doing that, I guess, to some extent. Well, so that gets into one of the, one of the more interesting concepts. I've talked about this with Seth Partnow before, that... One of the mistakes that they made, I think they did a lot of things right. One of the mistakes that they made was that they didn't get the complementary talent to maximize the assets they had. And I mean, I guess Ish Smith counts as changing that, but that's Ish Smith. Yeah, I mean, I guess the question is how good of a point guard do they really need to, to maximize Nerland's Noel? I mean, Okafor is probably a trickier situation because you probably need a whole offensive ecosystem to borrow a Kirk Goldsberry term around him with multiple shooters it's not just about the point guard because that part of it is really just entering the ball to him although you know he has done some more pick and roll since Ish Smith got there and one thing I liked that I saw last night with them is you know they ran a pick and roll and it basically wasn't a vehicle to pick and roll at all it was just to get him deep post-up position which he scored off of and that might be you know what ends up being the most successful fit thing for him uh, similar to how Orlando used Dwight Howard a lot during his prime. But, you know, it's the, also the failure, I guess, to take advantage of the values in free agency this summer along the lines of what we talked about. You know, if they're planning to start ramping up their spending next year, it's going to be a lot more difficult to do that than it would have been this summer if you're going after an Alfa Rucamino or someone like that. Well, yeah, and even the idea, which I posited in, in a piece of, running up the prices on everybody else. You know, if you're sitting there and you look at the Bucks, who you consider another good young team, and for whatever reason it looks like Chris Middleton is taking as much money in five years as you would give him in four, then you just you just hurt them a little bit by making that offer. But the, the other guy, so you're completely right on that point. The guy that I think about this with, honestly, with 10 NBA teams is if they had just given Jeremy Lin, let's say $5.5 million, like the, if they had given him the Jonas Drebko contract, so they give him $5.5 million with a non-guaranteed second year, say you're making as much money as it looks like you're being offered around the league, he doesn't solve all their problems, they're still going to be terrible, but at least then you have a better way of showing off and evaluating your own guys. And you might also have been able to get some value for him at the trade deadline, I think. Yeah. You know, that's the other potential scenario there. That gets back to the question of the limited number, scarce number of roster spots. Like that was the biggest resource in Philadelphia the last few years. Obviously, it wasn't money since they had plenty of that to go around. It was just how many guys can we get on the roster at any given time? Yeah. And if they were allowed to have more, I think that would have been fun. So they didn't have to cut, they didn't have to cut Christian Wood to sign Alton Brand back. Bingo. Yeah. And, you know, we'll see how much the existence of a one-to-one D-League affiliation, which I think is at this point a fait accompli in the next collective bargaining agreement, helps change that scenario. Because, you know, if you've got a situation where Christian Wood is on a two-way contract or you have exclusive rights to him with your D-League team, it becomes a lot different than having him as one of those 15 guys. 
what would you think about the idea, this is just spitballing, the idea of expanding no trade clauses? Because I think part of the part of what is also creating a disadvantage, let's say for a team like the Sixers, is that let's say Jeremy Lin, for whatever reason, let's say he would have wanted a, let's say he a, a partial no trade clause or something like that. I don't see who that hurts. Like, if you just allow a team to do that, because, yeah, it's great that the, the best players can have it, but as long as it's negotiated, who's being hurt by that? Hmm. I mean, as I think this through, my answer is probably is on a lot of things in the NBA. If, they, if it's an, if, an existing owner who sells the team to a new owner, and, you know, if that existing owner is like, well, we just need to sign free agents, so, you know, if, they, if it takes a no-trade clause, then, all right, that's what it takes. And then you fill up your roster with those, and the new guy takes over, and there's no way to do anything because of the fact that your roster is full of them, which you know is the same kind of thinking that, that obviously underlies the uh, the no trading future picks in consecutive years, the Stepien rule. It's you can still trade your picks every year if you want, as long by the time you get to the draft. So the, the league obviously doesn't care about forcing teams to make first round picks. What they care about is not decimating your future assets and you know, slashing the value of the team in a future sale. That's fair. That's definitely fair. And I, I think that the, the Sixers are in a, they're in a, in a compelling spot also because like the Rockets in, in the sense that they don't, they, I could see them moving almost anybody, though a lot of guys are at a low point in their value. You know, like I don't know who on that team they see right now is indispensable. Uh, I mean, I, you know, I, when you're three and 31, you probably shouldn't see anyone as indispensable. They've got four now, don't they? Yeah, they have four. Sorry, they, Sorry they, I'm sure changing them. You shouldn't see anyone at that point probably is indispensable. Well, that actually gets into something uh, I've been thinking about a lot for myself. And my general philosophy, if I were if I were in that position, is that the only players who would really be on a the- theoretical no-trade list for me would be guys who are clear-cut either current or future MVP candidates because those are the players who can swing titles. I've, I've, I've trod out the stat numerous times about how Basically, basically every team in the last 30 years that ha- has won a title has won it with somebody who's already won an MVP award. So for me, the only people I would ever even consider hanging up the phone without listening would be, you know, the Stephen Curry, Carl Anthony Towns class of guys. Are you in kind of the same mindset with that? Yeah, to me, the concept of someone being untouchable is really a fan and media thing and not a team thing. I'm sure that there are players that would like to be considered that. And, you know, obviously, if their name gets out in rumors, it's going to uh, impair the team's relationship with the player. But internally, you know, what if LeBron James becomes available? What if Steph Curry becomes available? Like, you can't sit there and say that someone is untouchable because that means they're untouchable. Like, everything is negotiable, ultimately. Everyone has a price. Yeah. But yeah, I, I think that it is it is interesting. Like, I mean, you think about, like, what would it take to theoretically get Anthony Davis from the Pelicans? But, you know, you can always think about that there are teams with collections of assets. Like, if the Warriors said, we will trade you the rest of our team for, for Anthony Davis in whatever capacity. Well, it's kind of like the offer that I would have proposed to the to the Kings for DeMarcus Cousins if I were the Lakers, which is, you can make any trade you want with our with our players and the number two overall pick, which became D'Angelo Russell. The reason I would have done that is just because the Lakers didn't have enough assets to really make it work. Right. And, uh, you know, I think when I looked at this before the draft that I found that basically if you added up all the positive trade values on the Lakers roster, they still didn't equal Cousins trade value. So, you know, there, there literally was no way for them to make a fair trade. But, you know, the other teams obviously have more flexibility with that sort of thing. Just a little bit. Yeah. Anything else you want to talk about? Oh, any, anything the, you want to promote? 
Uh, you, I, you, you're producing a, a metric ton of material in a great way. <laughs> yes, there's certainly a lot to get through. Uh, yeah, I got got a few things. Busy week coming up the rest of the week. So as I alluded, uh, Oklahoma City's trade target is coming up. Then a, a Kobe piece on Thursday, and then Friday revisiting the Love Wiggins trade. So awesome! Looking forward to it. Yeah. Thanks so much for coming on. All right, always, uh, always a pleasure to join you. Always a thought-provoking discussion. Thanks again to Kevin Pelton for taking the time. Of course, you can read him at ESPN, specifically ESPN Insider, and you can follow him on Twitter at K Pelton, K P E L T O N. If for some reason you do don't already, I mean, he's a great follow there, and of course, his material he's very prolific in a overwhelmingly positive way. I'm incredibly jealous in a way of of his work ethic because I could do a lot more if I if I had worked the way that he does. But I love the conversation. I thought it was really interesting and. I, I'm somebody who loves thinking about kind of the big ideas and thinking of making things better. And it's not as being a, a critic, it's being an optimist. And it's thinking that things can always be, can be better and things can be, can, can be improved. And I think that's something I try to do in the rest of my life, but it's kind of more obvious in the NBA. It's something we spend a lot of time watching, listening to, talking about, writing about. So in, in a way it, it kind of hones those criticisms in and of themselves Speaking of honing criticisms, any input you have on the show, positive, negative, I really do appreciate it. The best way, if you can fit it in 140 characters, unless you're one of those 10,000 folks, is you can send to me on Twitter. My Twitter handle is DanyLaRue, D-A-N-N-Y-L-E-R-O-U-X. You can also email me. I have MBA at gmail.com, which is for things like this, you know, for input. And I really do read everything. I respond to as much as I can, but I don't make that a promise because it takes time and certain people, you know, do thing do things that are very difficult to respond to. So, but I do read everything and I do appreciate it. The other thing you can do is if you subscribe to the podcast, that's something that's really good. And if you like it, if you write a review, because that is something that not only is good for advertisers, but is a way that though I don't know exactly how Apple does it, it's a way that they consider it for placement and the higher you are in the rankings the more people see it and things like that so can do that and also if you like it recommend it to people you think that'll like it i always encourage i encourage that i try to do that with my own work so i do that one other thing i'm going to mention now uh, i'll probably promote this on dunked on at some point is i'm i'm an iphone user so i don't have access to Dogcatcher, which is the podcast app nate uses but i've started using overcast which is a an, an iphone i think it's iphone specific podcast app and the thing that i really like about it so far is that it has the it has greater speed modifications so you can listen at 1.1 1.2 speed and for you have to vary it for different podcasts i talk faster than some people i guess i apologize for that that's just the way things are but that is really nice because even if you're just doing 1.2 you're cutting out a meaningful amount of time and for certain things i can do 1.5 1.4 if you can get to that point then you're you're saving yourself some time. You can get through more content. You can get through it more quickly. You can do an hour podcast on a 50-minute car ride, let's say, or something like that. So Overcast is the name of the app that I use. I believe it's O-V-E-R-C-A-S-T, um, just like the weather. But it is, it's really good. I've enjoyed it a lot so far. And, yeah, so as always, if you have any input, I really do appreciate it. I'm going to try to have on some some great guests in the next couple of weeks, already starting to, to line those up. Actually, we'll probably have a second podcast this week. I'm working on that right now. So thank you so much for listening. Take care and make it a great day. 
Run to Old Navy for revolutionary prices on summer's most stylish shorts. Tomorrow only, they're all 50% off for the whole family. All your favorite shorts, denim, linen, all of them. All shorts are 50% off tomorrow only. Run to Old Navy. Valid 630 excludes active. Run to Old Navy for revolutionary prices on summer's most stylish shorts. Tomorrow only, they're all 50% off for the whole family. All your favorite shorts, denim, linen, all of them. All shorts are 50% off tomorrow only. Run to Old Navy. Valid 630 excludes active.